Deep in History is independent and proudly listener-supported. Before we begin, I would like to thank my newest patrons, Brody, Kathleen, Jim, Zach, and Derek, who went to patreon.com slash deepinthehistory and pledged their support. Thank you for helping to keep Deep in the History independent and ad-free. Derek, Zach, Jim, Kathleen, and Brody, my new historians, I salute you and thank you from the center of my being. This is Deep in the History, and I'm your host, Arjun Hundle. A strange time is upon us, people pounding pumpkin spice and hoping to gain the courage to howl at the moon, feral Kennedys terrorizing the wilderness of the Northeast waiting for their time to pounce and rise to power. There is a reason for this, of course, for we are fast approaching the hour when the veil between our realm and the realm of the underworld is at its thinnest, a time when many believe ghosts, specters, and far darker things are free to show themselves at their most powerful and walk amongst mortals. You may think, nay, even believe that such things are silly modern contrivances, a distraction from the mundane and unfulfilling nature of life in late-stage capitalism, but you would be wrong. Hauntings, spirits, ghosts, and yes, even the undead have existed, well, as long as we have. Today I bring you a hauntingly beautiful tale from ancient Macedon that may well be the first documented case in the West of the undead rising, and perhaps, just perhaps, the first vampire. Long before the rise of the Republic of Rome, when it was a small town with influence over just a few villages around it, in the east, Macedonia ruled supreme. Under its king Philip II, Macedon has gone from a cultural and strategic backwater to the center of the Greek world. His military innovations, coupled with his incredible charisma and skills in diplomacy, have made him the overlord of the Greeks. Philip's sight are set firmly upon the perennial enemy of his people, the massive Persian Empire. And during the decade while Philip made his plans, watched his son Alexander grow into a man, and solidified his grip on power, something truly strange happened. An event that once reported widely became the talk of the Greek world and beyond, causing heated debates between everyone from priests to philosophers to peasants. For what transpired in the important town of Amphipolis had been witnessed and sworn to by so many citizens that even the king, in the midst of all his urgent planning, was sent reports, forced to investigate further, and take a personal interest in the story. You see, in Amphipolis dwelt a small family of traders. Demostratos and his wife Carito enjoyed prosperous lives. Their young daughter, the beautiful maiden Philinion, was on the verge of womanhood. She knew that soon a marriage would be arranged for her with the heir of another equally or more powerful family. An advantageous match could create an alliance that would ensure the prosperity of both families for at least another generation. Thus, she was paying particular attention to the visitors that came and went from their home each day to sign contracts or arrange new deals, always keeping an eye out for likely suitors from her hidden vantage behind the thin screens that separated their home from the rooms that served as their business offices. At first, she saw the usual clerks, sellers of goods, rival traders, and envoys from the capital city of Pella sent to fill the logistical needs of the king's ever-growing army. But then, she saw him. To her eyes, he was perfect, though she could only glimpse his outline through the screen. When she heard him speak, though she was too far away to make out the words, she knew she would be content to hear his voice forever. Unable to help herself, overwhelmed at the magnitude of the moment, she breathed in deeply 
and when she caught his scent, Felinian knew she had found her mate. Surely he had come to ask for her hand in marriage. After he had departed, she asked a servant for his name, and then returned to her room where she spent the rest of the day praying to the gods, thanking them, and then uttering one word continually, his name, Macades. In the evening, she was summoned to dine with her parents. Demostratos and Carito were full of joy as they told their beloved daughter that they had made a very advantageous match for her, and that they were sure she would be happy with the husband they had selected. Not only would her family's interest and power be expanded, but she would live in an opulent villa in the capital city of Pella, and dine regularly with the royal court. With the contacts that she would make there, the social circle she would move in, their family status would be enhanced greatly and her future children's lives would be full of power and plenty. We can only imagine how Felinion must have been filled to bursting with hope and joy until that terrible moment when Demostratos said her fiancé's name was Craterus, a powerful general in King Philip's mighty army. Lost to history is exactly what happened next. How Felinion felt can only be inferred from later accounts, which we will learn soon. What we do know is this. Being a dutiful daughter, and truly having no choice but to obey the will of her parents, Felinion married Craterus. Yet gone was the fun-loving, happy, and vibrant maiden. She seems to have simply existed, a shell of what she once was. Until one day, exactly six months after their marriage, Felinion dropped dead. Her death was an awful shock to everyone. She was healthy, and all assumed she must be happy living the high life with her husband. After all, anyone would be thrilled to marry their daughter to such a great man and enjoy the status it brought them. She had not been sick nor complained of any symptom of illness to any of her servants. She had simply lost the will to live. From later reports, we can piece together what may have happened to poor Felinion. From the very first sight of him, she had fallen deeply in love with Mercedes an all-consuming love, love eternal, and without that love, she could not survive. To understand how profound love was to the ancient Greeks, we need to learn their seven words for it. Eros, romantic and passionate love. It describes the desire and obsession between life partners, or that wild hot feeling in the early stages of courtship. Phila, intimate and authentic friendship. Love that is kind and encouraging, like the love we have for our closest friends, and the basis of the connection between soulmates. Ludus, fun infatuation, toying and flirtation. Think of the first crush you ever had when you were finally brave enough to act upon it. Storgi, unconditional love, familial, like the love of a mother for her child. It is also used to describe the love for one's homeland. Philautia, self-love, the healthy love of yourself that is the basis and reinforcement of self-esteem. It has a flip side, however, for philautia can become selfish, like one who becomes obsessed with their own pleasure, seeking fame, and when one is obsessed with status, it is the dark road that leads to narcissism. Pragma, love that is based on commitment, rooted in the romantic feelings to one's companion that extends to the family you create together. Agape, universal love, love for the gods, nature, all living things, and especially the less fortunate, 
and empathetic, altruistic love towards humanity, selflessness, helping others, the ideal basis of all great societies. All these forms of love encompass the very essence of what it meant to be a fully formed human to the ancients. For Philinion, love in any form could not exist without Mercedes, and without love, she could not live. Life and love were one and the same. And when her body hit the ground, her soul fell down into the underworld of Hades. It wasn't long before her tale spread through the millions of spirits of the dead and reached the ears of the gods of the underworld. It is even said that the injustice of her story soon reached up all the way to the height of Mount Olympus. According to legend, a council was called in Hades, and the lesser gods of the Chthonian, the underworld, assembled and debated what should be done. The consensus was that it was wrong and unnatural for an innocent like Philinion to die because she could no longer experience love. Yet what could be done? She now dwelt in the underworld, a place no mortal could ever return from. Finally, it came down to one voice that mattered above all others. And when Hades came to his decision, in the depths of the marble tomb her family had made for her, her still and cold body, laying on the slab of stone that was to be her bed for eternity, Felinian's eyes shot open, and she gasped a breath of air before coughing out the dust of months that had gathered in her lungs. This is the tale of a love so powerful that it tore through the veil between worlds. The saga of the gods intervening to right a wrong, and in doing so, unleashing something dark and primal that haunts humanity to this day. The true story of a tale so strange and hauntingly beautiful that it spread across the ancient world. Halloween with your lore master. So take a deep breath, let it out slowly, put some smoke in the air if you choose, and just let your mind flow to my voice as we go deep into the 4th century in Macedonia before the Common Era and experience the account of the West's first encounter with the undead, Necros. Welcome. The account of what happened next with Philinion and Mercedes comes to us from two sources. The first is a fragment of a letter of an eyewitness account that was put in a scandalous, bizarre, and truly weird tome called the Book of Marvels, which was commissioned by the Emperor Hadrian and created by his freedman, a man named Phlegon of Tralis. Last Halloween, we learned that paranormal inquiry was conducted at the highest levels of imperial government. Emperor Hadrian decided that the world needed a definitive account of every famous fantastical or paranormal event thus the Book of Marvels. As with so many texts from the ancient world that managed to survive the Dark Age, parts are missing. In the case of the incident at Amphipolis, we only have the last two-thirds of a letter written by a citizen. The second source is a brief reference to the incident from the 5th century, Common Era. It comes from Roman philosopher Proclus's commentary on Plato's Republic. Though the passage is short, it provides so much context that the two must be read in sequence to get a full view of the circumstances of the incident. As we are missing the first part of the letter from the Book of Marvels, let's set the scene. Some months have passed since the moment where the light left Philinion's eyes and she collapsed dead. Her husband, the General Craterus, brought her body back to Amphipolis to her devastated parents. Demostratos and Carito had a tomb constructed for her and sealed her body inside after observing all proper religious rites. Attempting to pick up the pieces of their lives, they did what all of us are forced to do in such terrible situations. They moved on. 
They are still prosperous traders, receiving business visitors from across Macedonia and Greece. One of these visitors is once again Makedes. He's most likely a guest in their home while conducting business with them and others in town. And then this happened. From the Book of Marvels by Phlegon of Tralis. The nurse went to the door of the guest room, and in the light of the burning lamp she saw the girl, Philinion, who had died and had been entombed many months before, sitting beside Makedes. Because of the extraordinary nature of the sight, she did not want to wait there any longer, but ran to the girl's mother, screaming, Carito, Demostratos! She said that they should get up and come with her to their daughter, who was alive and by some divine will was with the guest in their guest room. When Carito heard this astonishing report, the immensity of the message and the nurse's excitement made her frightened and faint. But after a short time, the memory of her daughter came to her, and she began to weep. In the end, she accused the old woman of being mad and told her to leave her presence immediately. But the nurse replied boldly and reproachfully that she herself was rational and of sound mind, unlike her mistress, who was reluctant to see her own daughter. With some hesitation, Carito went to the door of the guest room. Partly coerced by the nurse and partly wanting to know what had really happened. Since considerable time, about two hours, had now passed since the nurse's original message, it was somewhat late when Carito went to the door and the occupants were already asleep. She peered in, and though she recognized her daughter's clothes and features, but inasmuch as she could not determine the truth of the matter, she decided to do nothing further that night. She planned to get up in the morning and confront the girl. Or if she should be too late for that, she intended to question Makedes thoroughly about everything. He would not, she thought, lie if asked about so important a matter. And so she said nothing and left. At dawn, however, it turned out that by divine will or chance, the girl had left unnoticed. When Carito came to the room, she was upset with the young man because of the girl's departure. She asked him to relate everything to her from the beginning, telling the truth and concealing nothing. Makedes was anxious and confused at first, but hesitantly revealed that the girl's name was Philinion. He told how her visits began, how great her desire was for him, and that she said she came to him without her parents' knowledge. Wishing to make the matter credible, he opened his coffer and took out the items the girl had left behind, the golden ring he had obtained from her, and the breastband she had left the night before. When Carito saw this evidence, she uttered a cry tore her clothes, cast her headdress from her head and fell to the ground, throwing herself upon the tokens and beginning her grief anew. As the guest observed what was happening, how all were grieving and wailing as if they were about to lay the girl into her grave, he became upset and called upon them to stop, promising to show them the girl if she came again. Carito accepted this and bade him carefully keep his promise to her. Night came on, and now it was the hour when Philinion was accustomed to come to him. The household kept watch, wanting to know of her arrival. She entered at the usual time and sat down on the bed. Mercedes pretended that nothing was wrong, since he wished to investigate the whole incredible matter to find out if the girl he was consorting with, who took care to come to him at the same hour, was actually dead. As she ate and drank with him, he simply could not believe what the others had told him and supposed that some grave robbers had dug into the tomb and sold the clothes and gold to her father. But in his wish to learn exactly what the case was, he secretly sent his slaves to summon Demostratos and Carito. They came quickly, 
When they first saw her, they were speechless and panic-stricken by the amazing sight. But after that, they cried aloud and embraced their daughter. And then Philinion said to them, Mother and father, how unfairly you have grudged my being with the guest for three days in my father's house, since I have caused no one any pain. For this reason, on account of your meddling, you shall grieve all over again, and I shall return to the place appointed for me. For it was not without divine will that I came here. Immediately upon speaking these words, she was dead, and her body lay stretched visibly on the bed. Her father and mother threw themselves upon her, and there was much confusion and wailing in the house because of the calamity. The misfortune was unbearable, and the sight incredible. The event was quickly heard throughout the city, and was reported to me. Accordingly, during the night I kept in check with the crowds that gathered at the house. Since, with news like this going from mouth to mouth, I wanted to make sure there would be no trouble. By early dawn, the town assembly was full. After the particulars had been explained, it was decided that we should first go to the tomb, open it, and see whether the body lay on its bier, or whether we would find the place empty. A half year had not yet passed since the death of the girl. When we opened the chamber into which all deceased members of the family were placed, we saw bodies lying on biers or bones in the case of those that had died long ago. But on the newly constructed bier onto which Philinion had been placed, we found only the iron ring that belonged to the guest, along with a gilded wine cup, objects she had attained from Mercedes on the first day. Astonished and frightened, we proceeded immediately to Demostratus's house to see if the corpse was truly to be seen in the guest room. After we all saw the dead girl lying there on the ground, we gathered at the place of assembly, since the events were serious and incredible. There was considerable confusion in the assembly, and almost no one was able to form a judgment on the events. The first to stand up was Hylos, who is considered not only to be the best seer among us, but also a fine augur. In general, he has shown remarkable perception in his craft. He said we should burn the girl outside of the boundaries of the city, since nothing would be gained by burying her in the ground within its boundaries and perform an apotropaic sacrifice to Hermes Clithonius, Hermes of the Underworld. Then he prescribed that everyone purify himself completely, cleanse the temples, and perform all customary rites to the Clithonian gods. He spoke to me also in private about the king and the events, telling me to sacrifice to Hermes, Zeus, Xenios, and Ares, and to perform all these rites with care. When he had made this known to us, we undertook to do what he had prescribed. Mercedes, the guest whom the ghost had visited, became despondent and killed himself. If he decide to write about this to King Philip, send word to me also in order that I may dispatch to you one of the persons who examined the affair in detail. Farewell. The letter ends here, but let's go straight to the next account of the incident for the context that this tale deserves. Proclus, Roman philosopher, writing in the 5th century in the Common Era, from Platonis Rem Publican Commentarii, on persons who have died and returned to life. The case par excellence is Philinion. During the reign of Philip of Macedon, the daughter of the Amphipolitans Demostratos and Carito, she died as the newlywed. Her husband had been Caratorus. In the six months after her death, she returned to life and for many nights in a row secretly consorted with a young man, Mercedes, because of her love for him. 
He had come to stay with Demostrados from his native city of Pella. She was detected and died again after proclaiming what she had done was done in accord with the will of the Clithonian gods, the gods of the underworld. Her corpse was seen by everyone as it lay in state at her father's house. In their disbelief at what had happened, the members of her family went to the place that had earlier received her body, dug up the place and found it to be empty. The events are described in a number of letters, some written by Hipparchos and some by Ariados, who was in charge of Amphipolis, to King Philip. So ends the ancient account of the incident. You see how each plays into the other? The second giving us all the context we need for the emotional involvement of the first. Mercedes, realizing that it was his love that was sustaining her, that in fact his only purpose in life was to love Philinion, he could live no more. To fulfill his destiny, he took his own life so that he could find her in the underworld and give her the one thing that she needed to achieve true immortality, love eternal. In ancient Greece, ghosts were said to drink the blood of the living to sustain themselves. Thus, Philinion and Mercedes are still with us because their story gave rise to the vampire in the West. Up next in the epic series Verses is the Patreon exclusive where we will witness a very different battle of Thermopylae, the sack of the holiest place in the known world, and the wrath of the unconquered sun. After centuries, a stolen treasure is discovered, only to be stolen again by a greedy Roman, who brought the curse down on the Republic, and this curse would lead to Rome's most catastrophic defeat since the time of Hannibal, followed by a detailed episode about structural changes to the legions that would turn them into professional killing machines forevermore, the Marian reforms. Versus continues with the epic crossover, The Curse of Apollo's Gold followed by the tie-in, Reforma, both serving as prelude to the titanic Cimbrian War, coming soon. Thank you for listening to Deep Into History. Please go to patreon.com slash deepintohistory. I could really use your help to keep the show independent and ad-free. There's also a new tier that comes with the most coveted shout-out in podcasting, so please consider becoming peerless. Please make sure to tell your friends about this show, because this is an exciting time for me. Grinding it out as an indie podcast, putting in so much work, and with all of your amazing support, has put deep in the history into a position where we threaten to knock corporate podcasts off the charts. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Deep in the History to get your daily blast from the past, ask questions, or just chat. And as always, my dear friend, take care of yourself. I truly look forward to the next time we go.